this is a quick uh, background of uh, the topic and its relevance so yeah nation state as a concept we know uh, it's more or less it has become default most of our uh, recent articulations have also been around that but uh, it's a fairly recent concept it came about in the recent centuries and uh, it rose to prominence especially with the rise of the west as uh, in the western powers as the dominant world powers but we can say it's not an eternal model it's neither perfect nor you know universally applicable and uh, in the last century the eastern civilization started decolonizing india china japan and as we as the eastern civilizations strengthen and consolidate they started seeking a more suitable model for them that aligns to their own aspirations a state and a nation that reflects their uh, civilizational ethos and all these uh, civilizations are predominantly dharmic in nature uh, whether or not they use that word explicitly but we can relate to most of them can relate to the concept that underlies it dharma dhamma and intrinsically they seek a dharma raja whether they articulate it that way or not explicitly and most of these civilizations have currently you know adopted alien states following the dominant models but they are craving to express their aspirations and uh, create for themselves better models has become started becoming visible of late so a future statecraft if we are going to discuss that is going to derive more from eastern civilization ethos and in that sense dharmarajya is something of future it is going to be there it's not just that the indian crave or some subset of indian crave it is something innately a lot of civilization and vast majorities of them are going to you know push for and crave to realize at the same time uh, bharat cannot wait on all of them we will need to define for ourselves our dharma raja bharata has to in fact pioneer this by virtue of her own tradition so this is the background from Uh, which i want to see the topic a brief introduction then a contrast between the constitution and smriti rashtra rajya and the nation state and then uh, trying to project what uh, how a dharmic constitution of smriti would look like for future and the nature of a dharma rajya and then conclude so uh, dharma rajya as a term i don't know uh, that being a very dominant early uh, heard term these days or even a few decades earlier but uh, whether or not that term is used we know that craving is there lot of people express it in different ways in terms of what kinds of policies they want what is the nature of the state they would like to envisage and what is the what are the kinds of responsibilities they would like to see the state delivering based on uh, the epic 
ಜಾಸ್ತಿ ಮಹಾಭಾರತ ಇತಿಹಾಸ ಆರ್ ಬೇಸ್ಡ್ ಆನ್ ಧರ್ಮಶಾಸ್ತ್ರ ಥಿಂಗ್ಸ್ ಲೈಕ್ ದಟ್ ಇಫ್ ವಿ ಲುಕ್ ಅಟ್ ಇಟ್ ಆಸ್ ಅ ಸಬ್ಜೆಕ್ಟ್ the instruments of the state the policies the laws or all of these can be called as the manifest fourth leg of that subject when if we take the purusha sukta uh, equivalence it says padasya vishvabhutana tripadasya amritam devi only the manifest fourth leg is what is visible as the world and then there are three underlying ones that are invisible it can it's visible only to the seer in that sense uh, for this subject the policies the laws the instruments of the state the effects of the laws all these are only the manifest fourth leg what underlies that is an architecture of a state and what underlies the architecture of a state is a doctrine of state caste uh, what say it says what should be the nature of the state what should be the principles by which state should be governing what are the ideals that state should subscribe to and so on and underlying that in turn is a world view or a darshana so we can systematize this uh, you know subject the state craft only when we get to all these four levels and uh, articulate our position and say this is how things are going to be and the, at the root of all this is a dharma shastra dharma shastra gives the goal uh, and uh, ardha is the way by which dharma is fulfilled it gives the means to fulfill dharma in that sense ardha shastra gives the design and the instrument so that basically is the relation between an ardha shastra and the dharma shastra so unless we put up our dharma shastra dharma rajya cannot be realized that's my proposition and from that perspective i would like to focus more on the conceptual basis of how a dharma shastra can be articulated and for that purpose we use a lot of anecdotes uh, not necessarily as arguments to prove or anything but so that we can convey what we are intending to convey and uh, as part of this there is the contrast between uh, the foundation documents we discussed the skriti versus the constitution or the state versus the rajya and all this but again the intent is not to evaluate the merits of things but unless we have a reference point uh, or we can compare to what we can see and relate to it's a bit difficult to explain what we want to conceptualize we take it for granted we don't wish to argue that a state that aligns with the nation is required it is assumed we want we assert as an assumption as a premise that we require a state that aligns with the nation and there is no emphasis uh, specifically laid on a political model we don't want to propose anything an uh, executive structure or laws because we believe they will uh, emerge more as a result of a right understanding of rashtra and dharma shastra once we have the basis then we evolve a we define a character of the state then rest of the things follow the political model will follow 
more as corollaries of that so are there precedents for this have people actually tried to articulate there are a few works there have been very good attempts one is uh, rashtra loka by amrita vagbhava and uh, kavyakanta vasishta ganapati muni has given this samraj nibandhana and uh, swaraj bill of 1895 where it is said that there is a role of lokamanya tilak behind that and then daishik shastra this is given by badri saha so these can be seen more as constitutional or projecting works saying this is how things need to be and uh, but there are a lot of analytical works that go into the past and try to explain how the governance was in uh, ancient india or what the political thought was have there been attempts to systematize all this and say this is the value this is the structure of how the constitution should look like how the layout should be and things like that not many efforts have been done so far or at least i am not aware of so just the way uh, constitution is the foundational document for a nation state uh, smriti or a dharma shastra is the foundation foundational document for a dharma rajya a comparison between them would give us a fair idea of how we should be leading at uh, a dharma rajya so firstly their layout itself is fundamentally different uh, the content wise the merits of policies that is one thing but the very architecture of those documents are uh, defined the constitution predominantly has prescriptive content means it says we the people of this country this is what we envisage for ourselves these are the ideals we would like to stick to and then we define a state for that and state shall do this do that there is a framework of rights uh, and framework of responsibilities for the state and the rights that uh people have that state will be responsible for protecting and so on and then there will be laws and things like that dharma shastra on the contrary it has it starts with ontological content it says this is the nature of the world this is the nature of man this is the nature of society and this is the basis conceptual basis it takes based on which it articulates how a state should be in that sense this is a refutable document based on uh, the ontological content if something can be changed something can be shown as wrong that can be corrected in the ontological content and whatever corrections come follow in the subsequent sections the nature of the state accordingly will have to revise the responsibilities of state will change according to that In that sense, in that sense, it is both refutable and modifiable. I would say it's a more systematic document in that sense. Constitution, on the contrary, is definitely modifiable, but the structure for modification is not provided as part of the constitution itself. It comes from assumptions outside the document itself, and then the constitution also, in terms of layering, yeah, it has some layers. we say there is a basic structure but basic structure hasn't been always part of the original 
version of the constitution what came uh, later defined as a to be defined as a basic structure is basically a set of uncompromised principles assumed to be uncompromised in the constitution but primarily it's a temporal document it's an evolving document dharma shastra on the other hand has uh, layered content it has ratified into several layers one is the eternal universal layer which is called sanatana then there is a temporal layer which is called yuga and then there is a time space layer which is called uh, deshakala so here the region uh, diversity comes uh, then the time specifically situational things will come a lot of these content will be in the deshakala layers of the dharma shastras in terms of applicability it's known the constitution is uh, given for a nation state so the state defines it uh, it is defined for a state for that body of uh, land for that geography in a dharma shastra the there is a distinction between the law of the land from the natural and universal righteous order so even before we define that uh, landscape we talk of something permanent then we come to try then we define what the landscape is where the law of land applies well, in the sense the geopolitical and the geo uh, cultural almost coincide whereas in the dharma shastra it is not always so there is an orthogonality of institutions of state and nation the relating to the first point we discussed is the next one the moral scheme constitution uh, assumes a moral scheme it doesn't explicitly spell out a moral scheme it says public morality and then so whatever is uh, agreed as the collective moral order that will be codified that will not be codified but that will be followed by the law whereas in a dharma shastra it is uh slightly different uh, it goes ahead and formally codifies those assumed moral scheme based on which the laws will derive and uh, in a constitution uh it defines explicitly the a framework of rights which the state is responsible for protecting and execution of duties will be there but responsibilities are more applicable for state individual duties have mentioned but not rigorous enforcement whereas rights and duties is not the dichotomy by which the dharma shastra goes it defines the collective goals individual goals for life uh, and the means for fulfillment of those goals or the purposes of life uh, called the purusharthas and the state's responsibility is primarily to enable people fulfill their purusharthas and uh, coming to the matter of religion constitution uh, so based on the nature of the state it could be the secular or theocratic whereas this kind of dichotomy really doesn't apply in a dharma shastra in smriti because there is no religious or profane dichotomy in fact dharma shastra recommends 
tried to be agnostic of tradition at the same time it acknowledged this religious ecosystem where liberties of people need to be protected regardless of where they belong and finally the constitution is predominantly meant for organized societies which means state directly deals with the individuals and groups and identities whereas dharma shastra is meant more for a for an inherited society which means there are a tradition there is a ecosystem of traditions where uh, there is continuous uh, passing on of knowledge from generation to generation that way most of the collective behavior is derived from uh, inherited learning rather than how an individual sees the state is dealing with it so this is a fundamental difference i mean uh, it may not make a very apparent difference when we look at the laws but as we codify these things there will be a phenomenal difference in how it translates into lived experience to take a small example education itself inherited education is really cheap and sustainable whereas organized education is costly in terms of uh, so before going to the nation state uh, wanted a quick contrast in terms of uh, how a nation state differs from a traditional uh, rashtra or rajya for a rashtra nation state we know on the right side as we see there is this uh, there are these geopolitical units for which Uh, administrative systems are defined or governing entities are defined there is a village town city then we have a state for which a state government is there then this is a union in a union of states model the union government has some equation with the states where there is a distribution of power federalism and things like that but primarily it's a geopolitical entity which assumes that there is one language one culture for each of these units that it is governing whereas uh, in a rashtra we see uh, landscape is uh, divided or stratified in different ways firstly there are these geocultural units what we call as deshas then we also see the landscape in uh, in terms of their different forms actually there is a punya bhumi there is a tapo bhumi jnana bhumi different uh, kinds of categorizes in which we see the land based on which we create centers for excellence there we have a sacred geography we have a political geography we have a cultural geography in that sense we also have these equivalents in the sense grama maps village so grama nagara patana these things are there there are then janapada small bigger units over these then there are deshas which are cultural units geocultural units then there is a varsha or khanda there is a rashtra it's a abstract but we can say let us say if we have to say bharata is a rashtra at that level it can still map to a larger geocultural unity then we have a dwipa which is more like a continent and then there is a vasundhara the earth family as we call it 
and then for these once we have defined the cultural units based on these we define the political units historically if we see there have been several attempts to get uh, the entire subcontinent under one political umbrella and for that there have been uh, different ways there are ashwamedha rajasiya vaishnava there are uh, rituals that kings used to conduct where they used to establish their supremacy but that required uh, somebody of uh, high capability or military capability especially to bring everybody under an umbrella and then the ability to keep them under one umbrella so it was not always a permanent feature that we had a chakravarti there were very big empires there are the canonical six chakravartis as we talk of uh, the like uh, kartavirya sagara and then we had rama then yudhishthira vikramarka there were a lot of people who did that who but it was not always the case here is a quick uh, contrast between the nation state and the rashtra the indian union we know is a uh, welfare seeking one it wishes to establish welfare while it enables people but bharata we know the name itself suggests it is enlightenment seeking fulfillment seeking welfare is there it's articulated very well uh, but it is basic geographically uh, the geocultural and geopolitical have to coincide in a nation state whereas in a rashtra it doesn't have to the geopolitical is a temporal unit it can change uh, the boundaries keep changing whereas the geocultural units are more permanent units which can be agnostic of the political fortunes of course political fortunes do in influence their uh, growth the progress to an extent but these units survive by themselves the nature of unity in the indian union or in a nation state is predominantly political and military whereas in the rashtra it is cultural and civil and there are side effects of both in fact uh, in a nation state uh, especially in a democracy it, the political unit uh, assumes importance it politicizes most aspects of the life all struggles and end of the day become civilian whether it is you know governing policies education religion everything eventually gets a political angle whereas in a rashtra it is not exactly the same there can exist spheres of life that are agnostic of polity harmony is achieved mostly in the cultural sphere the nation state takes cognizance of the uh, political and military identity and uh, unity of the nation it doesn't always take cognizance so it does definitely assume uh, a culture it, it's not uh, completely agnostic of culture it says this is the culture this is the civilization we are representing but it has to be one culture one language so in that sense we can see how our states also have become you know states with one official language and they have created their own divisions in the society in fact whereas in a rashtra the, there are several types of integration motifs uh, the regional there are different levels of collectivities the individual is there then the you know cultural units are there the social units are there there are 
uh, groups that enable aesthetic fulfillment then uh, in that sense it becomes a matrix of integration motifs and all these identities put together build up a net of civilizational identity when we say there is one hindu culture it is not exactly one unit that we are talking of this is a matrix that has all these different collectivities coming together so the nature of unity is also going to be very different identities uh, in a nation state are largely a flat space and there is no hierarchy of or the matrix of identities that a nation state takes cognizance of the polity does not take cognizance of matrix of identities it does take cognizance of identities anybody any group can represent itself says this is what we are but they cannot say this is the system or the scheme of identities whereas in a rashtra that is there the nation state it's primarily though excellence is uh, one of the motives primarily the responsibilities of state are in ensuring there is parity whereas in a rashtra it is the upward mobility it's a dynamic uh, that it takes cognizance of the more uh, important part i mean it's usually told in a democracy that it represents public will but it has an assumption that the elected representatives represent the public will which may or may not always be the case as we have seen over decades uh especially in a diverse society where there is no monolithic opinion the notion of representation is very ambiguous whereas in a rashtra there is no such assumption there are mechanisms uh, and instruments for translating public will to identify and articulate this is the public will and then translating it into we can see even in folk stories how the kings used to get their uh, people gather public opinion without even people knowing it and uh, being a primarily political uh, animal the state in a nation state incentivizes more consolidation and uh, voicing of opinion and aggression unwittingly whereas in a rashtra tolerance and diversity are sustainable we don't and if you from a society perspective in a nation state identities tend to become disintegration motives rather than integration motives so this linguistic barriers are artificially created the culture barriers are there then the state boundaries then whereas these collective identities become integration motives in a rashtra which is what forms a web of civilizational identity and a nation state uh legalizes in the sense that state authorizes the interaction human interaction it authorizes marriages and things like that in a rashtra most of the social institutions are autonomous society is largely self regulating state enters only as a final arbiter before we had this nation state there was a lot of harmony culturally in various regions if we take the example of karnataka kannada origin then you know majority of the kirtanas were done in telugu and experts had mostly come from tamil land so in that sense there was no language or culture barrier 
between them because of political boundaries they all fell under different governing entities geopolitical entities but culturally they never had this problem they came together the culture could be synthesized languages developed in fact multiple languages developed most people understood more languages but once the geopolitical barriers came and they started formalizing one language one culture all these started becoming disintegration motif is there an alternative yes the dharmarajya as we uh, proposed earlier dharmarajya we believe will be a good alternative to what we have as a nation state is it fully developed as an idea no but it needs to be developed and the basis for that will be a dharma shastra one is the layering and structuring of the document itself then what it tells about the nature of the individual and the society and the state and the social cultural institutions and how the state deals with these uh then it comes to the raja dharma in fact raja dharma is what comes in the very early uh sections of the constitution whereas in a smriti it comes much later the raja dharma is where we articulate the responsibilities of the state and the head of the state then the moral scheme uh, in fact moral scheme partly comes ahead of raja dharma and then part of it comes later as as it discusses the legal matters the justice and penalty the jurisprudence is not primarily what we want to discuss today as a case in point we can demonstrate how different it might look like in a dharma shastra from a constitution if we want to use the word basic structure what would be contained in a basic structure would be the unchanging principles and the universal order this more or less is the sanatana layer so it would discuss the consciousness qualities the satvarajastamo gunas and the guna karma the principle of action or the dharma and the karma the nature of uh, dharma the nature of action and then the human craving for fulfillment the nature of human nature of man then what kind of cravings a man has if this he has this nature to take an example we say man has wants man has needs and then need these needs to be fulfilled for happiness and then these are all assumed in a constitution these are not explicitly stated these are stated in different theories and then in constitution they become visible as policies based on these assumptions whereas in a dharma shastra we explicitly discuss these we say man has could be having these three qualities then uh, his attributes are there then his craving is there then his action is there if these need to align if they align he has best results in life for them to align we need this kind of institution but how it systematically proposes what it wants to legalize then it discusses the nation's defining features the geocultural uh, units the land, landscape primarily then uh, then the units within that the desha as we call it and then the social institutions then it defines a governing entity for the nation it defines the law of the land 
it first defines the land where the law of the land applies then the law of the land and, uh, as the name itself says dharma shastra its main purpose is to explain the nature of dharma and uh, the best source of this apart from dharma shastra though they are also called dharma shastra in fact mahabharata the itihasa is there and various places in the purana we have very good illustrative examples where the chiefs go to the kings and ask them questionnaire there is a standard questionnaire usually they ask are the people innocent people fearlessly roaming around are the is there enough fear in people in the criminals to commit the crime there is a fairly standard set most most of these instances we can come across that gives us one good idea of how rajadharma is seen but this is ahead of that and rajadharma is instantiated as one role of one entity in the entire society before that the smriti discusses the nature of the dharma in general which is basically what are the principles primal principles how what the nature is what the world is how the world has come into existence what is the purpose of that and then what is the purpose of life so here the consciousness qualities is satvaraja samavana the three qualities that enable the different kinds of phenomenal experiences of humans that they are discussed one assumption that is made here uh, because it is ontological is that nature is our teacher and our trustee we derive all the lessons from nature when our institutions are founded on principles closest to the nature we believe that the society can evolve by itself rather than being uh, organized into doing something society can self regulate and evolve as an organism and in that sense it will be resilient as well as it can evolve into a more civilized order incrementally so some of the principles we take uh, you know from lessons we take from the nature one example is complementarity there is a balance that is created when we enable multiple thing uh, entities groups or tendencies in the society they will tend to balance each other out over time rather than we have to having to create a balance using state power then things have cyclic nature every phenomenon has a cyclic nature we take this explicitly into cognizance it has its benefits then uh, we define goals of life and then how to fulfill them then the different uh, roles that an individual has and the different dharmas let us say there is a vyakti as an individual individual has his own dharmas then he has his responsibilities as a spouse as a offspring as a parent as a member of the family as a member of the clan as a member of a region and so on so at different levels even as a king so at different levels individual has different roles for each of these there has been a codified uh, set uh, or codified behavior how what is the tendency what is the fulfillment what what an individual would crave to do in that position 
what gives him the best fulfillment that involves duties also but duty is not primarily the way by which it is defined so that's why we call it uh, a better translation to dharma would be natural righteous order it is the intrinsic nature of the being it's not an imperative and if we have to contrast it the kantian uh, categorical imperative it's not universal in that sense but it is universal by virtue of it being present everywhere there is a universe universe has an order the cosmic order is called the rita and then the same principle is operative in every being which is dharma so there is a it is still universal but it is yet not universal it needs its own contextual treatment so if we have to state an equivalent imperative uh, or equivalent to imperative dharma is basically about knowing one's true nature and being true to one's nature and based on these uh, roles and these cravings the collectivities are designed the different collectivities or the institutions are vehicles meant for fulfillment of individuals and they bring about the harmony between the micro and the macro so in that sense by fulfillment of roles or and cravings at different levels people are fulfilling their dharma at different levels and that's how dharma is actually building from the bottom from the smallest unit to the largest unit rather than getting enforced from the top to the down this is how probably pictorially we can represent how the institutions might look like there is the micro at the bottom where the individuals are there each being has its own nature there are purushardhas there are fulfillment and there is a dharma the operating principle of each being then at the top we have the cosmic view where there is the rita or the cosmic order so all the abstractions or the concepts that apply universally are articulated there the pantheism is there the causation principles are there theories of causation are there or the concept of varna is there it's basically on what is universal and then we have between these we have so many collectivities that are trying to harmonize the individual through at different levels with the highest level or the universal so for that in the center is the hierarchical structure power structure that is the state or the rajya three primary uh, elements one is the head of the state obviously then the mantranga is there which is the visionary body then we have the amartya or the executive body these three if we have to take uh, you know in a shastra equivalence these three more or less represent the three kinds of power the will knowledge and the action head of the state represents the will in, in a democracy he represents the collective will of the people in a monarchy he represents the divine will or whatever it is and then on the left we have what is continuous across time so the sampradayas or the traditions they are the streams that come uninterrupted and they are the sustaining entities they are the bedrock of the civilization now on the right we have a stratified yet non hierarchical uh, social institutions 
that the individual relates to the at the bottom if we see the individual relates to this the smallest unit of collectivity an individual relates to is a family then there are clans there are occupational units there are cultural units there are different levels of units these don't uh necessarily become a hierarchy of granularity it's not necessarily that each of these unit has to be part of something bigger which is in turn part of something bigger they they form a network the best uh, example is jati versus desha desha can have many jatis and jati also can span many desha so if we don't take cognizance of this fluidity we tend to see them as rigid units and then policies that come out of those would suffer those side effects so smriti does not explicitly articulate these but what it does is it assumes that these naturally exist it doesn't say what what all kinds of collectivities exist it explicitly states what exists at the micro and the macro level anything in between is temporal it can change those units will change the nature of those units will change they are not the primary focus though it the content will be there uh, as prathis evolve from time to time that content is liable to change but what does not change is the nature of the individual and the nature of the universe and once it generalizes the human aspirations it becomes very easy to articulate what is required for the state to enable these and smriti usually has a policy i mean it's not very articulated but it has a policy to trade off the temporal with the permanent the permanent should not suffer that is primary but at the same time situations come because of which the permanent is temporarily compromised to give precedence to a temp- uh, temporary principle a deshakala exigency might take more precedence and the most important thing here is it tries to incentivize human effort and aspiration towards excellence and upward mobility the idea is that each individual ultimately needs to fulfill himself excel himself and collectivities are vehicles that way collectivities also become vehicles for excellence and identities are not incentivized it's not identity but all identities are in phase or inward looking whether it is the tradition whether it is the clan whether it is the occupational unit these look at excelling within themselves rather than these are becoming identities that give an individual bargaining power with other units of course they give but that's not their motive so uh, economy uh, is one thing i mean the subject is more aptly dealt with in adhyashastra dhyana dharmashastra but there are a few indicators that we can see in dharmashastra independence security and prosperity there are primary goals by which bharata shastra creates instruments to fulfill these goals one of the uh, advantages we have uh, if we look at the institutions is they give a matrix that is resilient any uh, type of collectivity suffers there are others to balance out and uh, make up for it on a temporary basis until we restore balance so and that kind of phenomena kept uh, going on for a long time 
until the superstructure itself got demolished if we look at the past and whenever there has been a recovery from a uh, trough or a let us say whether miraging has occupied we have recovered there are measures to recover uh, post temporary correctives to remove the disabilities to help the you know oppressed uh, parts of the society state has instruments to do that but they have seldom resulted in any discrimination or anything and temples are run by uh, so yeah uh, the religious institutions or the spiritual institutions since they are part of the society they are largely self regulated autonomous run from within the society state has nearly no role in them those state funds them state doesn't manage them they are mostly run by the dharmic trust they are aligned to the traditions and uh, these institutions have served as centers of high civilization and excellence learning aesthetics ritual philanthropy they are, uh, the host of activities uh, ran around the temples state naturally funded them because they were centers of abhidaya though we don't have an explicit word called the legion here uh, we had uh, in fact to an extent we still have an ecosystem where we have full life cycle of traditions a lot of traditions came about they served their purpose they got dissolved into the ecosystem and that is possible when we take cognizance of that ecosystem instead of dividing uh, you know state taking cognizance of these groups and trying to incentivize or uh, giving rights to them needless to say the concept of majority minority doesn't really apply in a diverse society you have hundreds of groups hundreds of traditions calling one as majority by artificially grouping a lot of things doesn't make a lot of sense and these traditions five more clearly through uh, you know they mutually enrich each other they engage with each other and there are set rules that everybody accepted for that engagement and that is not decided by the state that was organ that organically allowed uh, evolved from within the ecosystem of these traditions and each tradition needless to say is in faced for practices though they had their missionary element the in faced nature is what resulted in their uh, excellence state does not grant any explicit right to propagate right is only to practice propagation is a result of the credibility we earn through the system and there are ways to establish one's merit and credibility the state in that sense is a you can say sampradaya nirapeksha dharma raja basically agnostic of traditions but anchor is still the dharma the righteous order is its reference point and this does not definitely stop the state from acting on deviant individuals or even traditions or groups so an entire cult misbehaves there is nothing that stops the state from acting on it penalizing it we have seen bhoja do it we have seen uh, shivaji maharaj do it this next section 
inner dharma shastra would be the raja dharma which articulates the nature of the rajya and the raja raja in the sense of a head of the state whether he is or whether he is not a monarch and here again the word dharma needs to be carefully applied it's basically not just a set of responsibilities of the state the way constitution defines it is basically the intrinsic nature and vehicle for fulfillment of a state's own purushartha and the ruler's own purushartha in that sense uh, what is the fulfillment for a state in a way that it aligns best with the fulfillment of the nation that is how rajadharma is defined and permanent principles for this are uh, defined in the dharma shastra the instruments for fulfilling these are defined in the adha shastra state legislates its own responsibilities and society regulates its own responsibilities so state doesn't actually try to define what the society social divisions are or things like that these are temporal elements they could be uh, instruments from time to time where the state could act but they never came uh, became part of the dharma shastra which is supposed to be more permanent in nature state's entry is mostly reactive in matters of arbitration rather than an active monitoring some of the principles of the rajadharma when we keep coming across even in folklore right from itihasa the dharma shastra folklore at every level one is raja is the palaka he is like the parent he looks after the people then rajasya mulam raja he is the root of the state if tree is seen as a state he is the root of it he is the head of the state uh, the ministry and executive these three are mapped to the three kinds of uh, power the will power and action we can say ichha jnana and kriya in fact uh, a very good uh, instance or example we have citation in the lalita upakhyana where the maharagni she is the queen lalita devi and then her mantrini or the minister she is the representative of uh, the power of knowledge then there is dandanatha the executive or the general she is representative of the power of the action the varahide the next principle is uh, yatha raja tatha praja we would have heard of this so many times but it's not taken as seriously i mean in fact we can see it today and uh, whenever there is a good ruler we can see a phenomenal change in the way people perceive the health of their nation how good things are going in the country and they feel themselves responsible towards the society and themselves where the state is responsible we also see people being irresponsible it it's never the other way around we never say the yatha praja tatha raja king doesn't behave based on people based on the king the people take liberties or don't take liberties or feel responsible or feel irresponsible in that sense it is very important uh, and tradition has placed a lot of uh, importance in ensuring the right man comes to the top 
and whenever there was a deviance there was a lot of premium placed on replacing the regime with the right one as we can see in the huge wars the mahabharata and two qualities that the uh, head of the state should be having definitely are uh, you know praja ranjakatwa he should be his role should be pleasing to the people people should be happy with the rule even in perception not just in enjoying the benefits of the rule and shiksha dakshata the innocent should be fearless and the criminal should be fearing and uh, the these are the active roles of the king he needs to protect the state uh, and the nation from external aggression and internal turbulence he needs to protect the weak there should be a fair taxation there should be excellent administration in terms of town planning hygiene and then he is responsible for synthesizing energy centers which is not a very articulated role but it can be seen in many instances whenever there is a good king he does all this he creates centers of uh, you know political military economic educational centers of excellence as well as strength and the dharma shastra actually takes uh, gives a lot of uh, prominence to justice and penalty the jurisprudence so the permanent principles are here and the temporal ones need to come from more the instrumental you know texts like andha shastra enforcement of the collective order is made the responsibility of the state and order comes more from the permanent principles the local units of the collectivities these are all not exactly defined this uh, praja does not take cognizance of that in a general sense but it takes cognizance of them in a very specific sense depending on how its perception of the law and order is and state machinery's effectiveness in ensuring a crime free society no uh, people it is always said we should respect the law but law gets respect based on how much it deserves respect in public view so if it is perceived as fair and equal then it will get respect so state machinery is responsibility to responsible to ensure that perception is going to the people along with its implementation how much the law is feared by the offenders how much the state creates fearlessness in the innocent how transparent and corruption free the nexus of local social regulating authorities and the state machinery is this is not a very easy thing but it is said as an explicit goal because its importance is cannot be exaggerated and it has also uh, a goal to minimize the need for state arbitration society needs to be as self regulating as possible state needs to be non coercive state can be non coercive only in that case the more state has to interfere the tendency of state to become coercive will increase so these are the few basis for determining the penalty that state imposes one is to make sure the individual expiates for his you know since it is said that if the individual doesn't uh pay for what he does then he will pay for it in the other world so the king actually is helping in a way by the 
by making the individual pay here and that also ensures deterrence of crime because he is making example of offenders and that creates fear among the offenders and there should be a fair uh, uh, proportion of penalty realization and transformation in the individual has been called ideal I and mean, there is an effort to show its importance so it is not a very formally stated there is no formally stated mechanism for that prevention of disproportionate penalty is definitely because then the king will uh, ruler will start uh, being seen as a tyrant there are a few bases for just penalty uh, one is the nature of the offense the motive behind the offense then the position of the individual and the impact of penalty this is one thing that contrasts the dharma shastra from the constitution where uh, equal penalty is applied in the modern nation state basically if there is an equal penalty between the weak and the strong let us say a politician and a you know lower grade clerk the impact it has on the life of the clerk is huge and the impact it has on the politician is very little in that sense there is very little fear in the powerful so the uh, position and the nature of the individual is taken explicit cognizance of before imposing the penalty now is this subjective if this is not objective how can we ensure uh, fairness that is the subject that needs to be developed i mean it, it, it was there that knowledge was there but as we develop a text for a new age it needs to be explicitly stated the last section is the geopolitics uh, the federal nature of the system is usually reflected here so the deshakala desh layer almost is entirely uh, controlled by the regional units of power the geopolitical units at the at each region but the geocultural unit still remains the basis for policy even if a king rules multiple geocultural units he is responsible to apply different laws as applicable for those cultural units than he articulating what he wants for his political unit and all the regional and central units have to adhere fully to the sanatana or the eternal layer based on the strength and the pan and things like that the regional units of power have their own negotiation with the central units or the bigger units in terms of what kind of laws they would be controlling what is their relation to the union there is trade off of their power and things like that they negotiate the temporal layers they retain autonomy on the deshakala layer arbitrating and administrative systems build bottom up from the you know local family from the village to the towns and each of them have their own uh, administrative systems and the legal systems their nature will also differ based on the nature of the region the security and administrative systems they find place more in the text of state of more other shastra domain because these are mostly temporal the fact that they exist is what we can see and as a political model we don't see any explicit uh, 
dichotomy between principality and republic in bharata as we have seen elsewhere in the world so alternative even if we say democracy is what is ideal and things like that it's not necessary that its alternative has to be a monarchy we need to define a model that best suits the future democracy has also evolved as one stage it is a default today it has been an improvement definite improvement over the previous phases in human evolution but it can't be said to be the ideal so future craving of mankind we will have to evolve a better model than that and it will evolve in time but their basis should be these permanent principles so to conclude the basis uh, for a smriti or dharma shastra for a new age has to have the understanding of traditional smritis not as rule books they are not imperative but they are ontological they are guides to nature so we need to take that wisdom and apply only that uh, eternal prism or the dharmic prism to present and the future so that what we frame will best reflect our aspirations we have to adopt the permanent uh, nature elements from the older ones we have to but we have come a long way so there is a disconnect also so the temporal and the deshakala layers need to be developed almost afresh and they need to be applied appropriately to the union and the regional units uh, as part of that we need to ensure that the state aligns with the nature of the nation rather than state defines what the nation should be what the society should be how it should be the art given by the state is what is problematic and state plays an active role in facing external problems it plays a very passive role in strengthening the, the institutions of the society and it invests in abhyadaya and nishraya of individual and collective in that sense we believe developing a smriti holds the key for uh, the future statecraft evolution of dharmarajya that definitely requires retrieving the indic traditions from where they are they are almost in icu now they need to come back from a preservation mode into a synthesis mode they need to generate the knowledge required for future the the dharmic state the, the dharma rajya or the rashtra is largely uh the righteous order or the individual is first correct which is the natural state of the purpose of a human being growth and so on and so forth now this is in complete contrast to say abrahamic religions which is where allah or god has dictated what how man is supposed to be um so obviously the the rajya or the rashtra and and the framework of of that will be i mean this this does not fit that idea their world view does not fit an indic world view at all is a confirmation i wanted to get from you that's part one part two of the question is that given uh, suppose we are are able to pull our traditions um, out of and able to implement more of a dharma rashtra could islam and christianity actually fit the notion of a sampradaya within the context of all other sampradayas 
So there are two or three questions I'm trying to ask. It's a little hard for me to articulate at this point, but if you could. Sure. Uh, from what I understood, yeah, the first thing, definitely, the, uh, I didn't use the word normative versus you know, ontological uh, intentionality. Uh, but when we discuss that imperative versus the ontological, that's where, so basically we, we, you ought to do this. That's the kind of normative scheme that the Abrahamics have. And that reflects in the nature of the constitution itself. Constitution does not say this is how the nature of things are. It says this is what the state needs to do. This is what the individual needs to do. So that is the, so once we fix the nature of the foundational document, it will reflect in all the institutions automatically. We don't have to explicitly address the uh, how we codify for the tradition. We have given that freedom at the uh, by articulating the state itself. So the state does not have to. Uh, when it is not saying any art. When it is articulating the responsibilities only for the state, but it is not saying this is how the nation or the society or the individual should be, we have already taken the control out of the hand of the state. So, in that sense, the state ceases to be Abrahamic already. If we have a Dharmashastra as the foundational text. Okay, uh, now within the state of a Dharmashastra, how, how do these religions at all survive? How are they going to be able to coexist, if at all? Do you have a view on that? Yeah, so that is up to them. But they need to abide by uh, principles of coexistence. You can coexist with others, you are good. You can't coexist, you have a problem. So we are not telling how you manage it yourself. And that's the difference. Let us say, I mean, when uh, Shivaji Maharaj dealt or when Bhojadeva dealt with different traditions, he did go after them, he penalized them, they penalized them, where they were found deviant according to the native norms. So that is fine. So if uh, the problem today is we, uh, we incentivize the evangelizing tradition, right? Those that are aggressive are incentivized explicitly by the state. So once that is removed, when propagation itself is not a default right, practice, everybody has right. Propagation is uh, something that needs to be earned by credibility. Right? If there is an ecosystem where these traditions are there, they engage in argumentation, credibility gets established, but doesn't need to be monitored by a state. Where people like uh, the argument put by somebody, they will automatically uh, get attracted to it, they will start appreciating it. So if traditions can grow by themselves, it is fine. Where traditions start using deceptive means or aggressive means, violating others' liberties, then the state will come into picture. And state will act in more in terms of uh, controlling the law and order. They are not acting to incentivize any tradition, but to make sure they protect the liberties of the people. So yeah, in that environment, you want to survive, you have to change your ways. I mean, we don't say what you need to do. 
but that's the harmonious way very nice talk and uh, so many clarifications is there in the tables i have one question that in uh, dharma rajya how a, a rajya deal with another rajya who has a different kind of uh, language and then uh, food so how they used to deal with each other is always uh, means uh, fighting kind of thing or it's a very harmonious dealing means in present time we can see the, how the international relations were there uh, yeah so uh, if the let us say we take a vijayanagara or maratha i don't think they try to put their language in all the regions they rule they suppose that each region has its own language its own culture and the state that is dealing with all these didn't necessarily try to put its own language because there is no official language that needs to be imposed on all regions in a nation state there is one language one culture one political unit for it that is what we currently suffer from but once we remove that linking and there are two orthogonal institutions sets of institutions society has its own thing the language is there the culture is there people interact by themselves they are not bound by the political boundaries at all so one king dealing with another king is almost regardless of all this so just to build on to alok tripathi ji's question so uh, when there was prevalence of say buddhism or if imagine now i mean you said basically that there is cultural unity what does cultural unity mean uh, i mean i know what it means but would would an an aggressive religion say you talked about the subcontinent right was tied in a always tied in a cultural uni- unity uh, uh, unity even though there were uh, janpadas which were interacting with each other in today's context in the subcontinent with two islamic countries on either side of our borders mm-hmm. um as far as i understand the uh, coexisting with them as a janpada under indian union under an indian dharma rashtra is probably impossible in the current framework that you've given and that was the tied question you know i had earlier because there is no cultural unity there is no understanding of the individual individual's path it is all god given allah given uh, dictated so in that so, sense how can they ever coexist they probably cannot the process in which it actually got established in the first place let us say when partition happened punjab had its culture sindh had its culture baloch had its culture so this entity Uh, the religious entity the theocratic entity came by supplanting that cultural entity so the reversal of that process is what harmonizes that region again into the you know dharmic union right but the cultural unity unity is a uh, is an not necessarily a- so it's more than unity the uh, the moment that cultural entity is taken cognizance of let us say punjab has its culture now it is replaced now there is there is only islam and there is urdu but if we, the moment we take care uh, take cognizance of panchanada region its own culture and its own habitat and its own languages it is becoming a desha so it's basically what we take cognizance of 
what the state takes cognizance of if state does not take cognizance of religion then it can it has instruments to harmonize that uh, territory i mean it's not a one day process obviously the there are lot of incentives placed on those regions those languages those cultures and things like that before that you know the assimilation can happen but it there are ways to do it yes but at a very uh, if i have to say it in one line yes the reversal of the process involves putting the culture putting the language putting the practices desha as the unit instead of religion as the defining feature once the state does not take cognizance of religion at all then the way state deals with those individuals those groups will start changing i mean so, we don't have to state it as a religion problem that's what i'm saying yeah thank you rahul ji and thank you shankar ji for uh, i mean uh, very articulately i have i have read this in bits and pieces but i think you have put it all very well um i think uh, it's also builds on the questions previously asked but i just want to ask you that towards the end of your presentation you also mentioned that we have gone far from it right from the dharma rajya concept so uh, i don't know if you can address this but uh, how do you think can we get closer to it next what would be your uh, suggested uh, road map in that sense what should be those institutions on which we should work uh, so that we get closer to this uh, back to the state of dharma rajya there from where we are today? as we, so if we go to the first one or two slides uh, introduction basically we are looking at the policies and how things might appear but underlying those policies is that you know that architecture of the state and behind that there is a doctrine behind that there is a world view once we can define that and then we develop a dharma shastra we the theory is developed then we can discuss the next a uh, stage or the ardhashastra or the instruments of the state and the you know duties of the state today i think we are going the reverse way that is why the road map is looking very far but once we have an articulate view of how the dharmashastra looks like then the ardhashastra is a matter of you know just following the principle and articulating problem solving applying how uh, applying to the society so i think we need to reverse that start from the dharma shastra instead of from the policy to the dharma shastra it just it's very hard to imagine to shobhiji's question on how do you start reversing for example the constitution itself uh, there are uncompromisables in the constitution itself which you know so the basic structure of the constitution and all i, yes. I don't know ever untangle all of this and move step wise i guess that was also but has building on to shobhiji yeah so if we start changing uh, you know laws and then try to change articles in the constitution that's a churn of the ocean and that's a way too far off if we have a theory if we have a shape of how the dharma shastra looks like then there is a statement of this need to replace the existing one there is a debate that can start without that reference text we cannot start argument today we are not in a position to start that argument there is this constant fear uh, shankarajit of uh, i mean one worry that comes in to mind in the dharma uh, dharma rajya model 
is is the janpadas and you know the fear is of a disintegration of the indian union right i mean after many many centuries if you look at savarkar's work his his key point of why we were colonized was constantly that we were actually broken up into uh, smaller janpadas and we were never yeah. united uh, never, political union political union did not exist so one fears you know all of those type of fears also come up in mind that how do you create a framework to retain the union the political union while having the rajas have independence of how they want to conduct their lives including completely paradoxical or completely diametrically opposite uh, janapadas say for example baluchistan or pakistan with a majority muslim population you know how do you create that and how do you regain so yeah political union definitely so uh, that i agree i mean we obviously will not go the bottom up for political it has to be top down but we need to orthogonally separate it from the geocultural it has to be bottom up once we have enabled the bottom up geocultural and let things build uh, from smaller units families clans regions deshas and things like that geopolitical has to be top down so as we articulate i mean earlier it was purely based on the capability of the ruler right? if there was somebody who could unify multiple regions he became a bigger king or a chakravarti or something like that definitely will have to change that's why i said the political model needs to evolve i don't want to state what it should be because but uh, political union has to be there it should be articulated top down and its negotiation of power with the regional unit has to be part of that adhyasha so one political unit at the center having one military that is a yeah it's a given there are so many speakers of ours dr kinra delst is here nugendra vinod ji is here uh, quite a few speakers have uh, gotten together today to listen to your a privilege to be able to <laughs> uh, my question is that if someone is a chakravarti raja then he will manage a rashtra rajya he will rule a rajya and under that rajya whatever desha comes what how many ever deshas come that will be his dominion at that point and uh, his policies will have to be also accordingly so uh, right that regional policies apply the desha kala at each unit and then there are some policies that he will be able to apply for all the regions that he is ruling rashtra is an organic whole there is it's not something that is ruled in fact rajya in that sense is a part of the rashtra itself yeah actually so can you justify the things that like asomek yagya was there mm-hmm. so where king explained himself ruling over others so is it means by kindness or character of the king or by military power of the king how one rajya accept the asomega yagya other rajya it both military aspect is definitely there in asomega rajasiya in fact rajasiya was probably less military conflict involved but uh, military element definitely is there because 
one who cannot protect his kingdom even if he is given supremacy he can't protect everybody so that one had to prove that capability there is no doubt about it it's not a matter of aggression but it is a matter of demonstrating capability yeah and now i think that equation itself has to go because if there is a union people have to anyway all the regional units contribute in terms of a common military and all that so it should not matter much 